Ever since I got bit by that spider, I've only had one week where my life has felt normal. That was when you found out. When you botched that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man. We started getting some visitors. From every universe. Hello, Peter. You're not Peter Parker. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Dr. Otto Octavius. <laughs> Wait, no, seriously, what's your actual name? There are others out there. We need to send them back. So, Scooby-Doo this crap. You know, all this is kind of your mess. I know a couple of magic words myself, starting with the word please. Please, Scooby-Doo this crap. You're flying out into the darkness to fight ghosts. What do you mean? They all die fighting Spider-Man. It's their fate. I'm sorry, kid. Yeah, me too. Don't. Look, there has to be another way. There isn't. They're a danger to our universe. You're not gonna take this away from me. Peter. You're struggling. Everything you want, while the world tries to make you choose. This is all my fault. I can't save everyone. In the latest installment of the Spider-Man films, what happens? Uh, the big theme is that Peter Parker, right? He asked Doctor Strange to cast a spell so that everyone will forget his identity, which they had learned in the previous movie. And so Doctor Strange does that. But the only problem is in the middle of doing that, um, Peter Parker realizes that that means MJ will also forget his identity. And he has kind of um, enjoyed the connectivity, right, with her learning about who he is. And so he, um, he hesitates. And when he hesitates, that opens up what uh, becomes known as the multiverse, right? So all of a sudden, all the villains that are working in the other universes now know Peter Parker's identity as well. And they leave those and come to real time to attack um, Spider-Man in real time. And so in doing so, he realizes that what he has to do is he has to capture those villains and send them back. He can't, he can't kill them, he can't take them out in real time because that alters history. And he also realizes in the process that he can't do it by himself. Thus, other Spider-Men come from previous generations uh, to help him and fight and war in the battle. All the time, while he's trying to save um, the villains, the villains are actually trying to kill him. And it is lost on us. Well, I say it's lost on me sometimes 
that when we talk about um, Jesus, we think about him. Jesus didn't just die for people who loved him or people who were like, meh, you know, kind of indifferent towards him. Jesus died for people who were trying to kill him. And along the way, in this spectrum of people and the way they interact and act with Jesus, John chapter 3 brings us one of the most interesting interactions. A guy comes with a question. His name is Nicodemus. And I guess it's not just a question in my mind. It is the question. It's the question that we're all asking, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian believer, not a believer. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Translated, Jesus how can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? And some of you may say, I don't even believe, I don't even believe there is heaven. But if there was, if there was, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know how to make sure? Jesus answers Nicodemus' questions from a number of different perspectives. First, from the perspective of morality. What does it mean to be good, right? And then he kind of shifts to philosophy. He talks, uh, uses this metaphor of, of human birth and, and spiritual birth. You, you must be born again. But then he answers the question really not from the perspective of morality or philosophy, but from history. Jesus dips 1,500 years plus back into Hebrew history in John chapter 3, verse 14, as he's answering this question. Here's what he says in 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus goes all the way back to the Exodus Numbers chapter 21 to this event that happens um, in, in Hebrew history to answer the most important question. And so it takes a little bit, right, of context to help us with the question, certainly with the answer. So you go back to Numbers chapter 21. Here's what happens. Verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. So there's first thing. Just note that spiritual impatience. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Which is exaggeration, right? Obviously God had not done that. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So first idea I'll give you today. Spiritual impatience <clears throat> is like poison. I'll say it to you again. Spiritual impatience is like poison. All along the movement of the Exodus, the children of Israel would... They would pause, they would complain, they would whine at times, and they would say, man, we wish we could go back to Egypt. Well, Egypt was 400 years of bondage and slavery and murder. And so you realize that they're getting impatient, right, along, along the spectrum, along, along the way. And God is going to speak. He is going to speak to this, this spiritual impatience that they're struggling with along the way. So here's what they say, right? They get to the plain of Edom, and they're like, man, this is, this is terrible. And I'm, I want to pull verse 5 back up so you can read it um, again. They say, they say that we don't have any food. We don't have any water. And we loathe this worthless food. Now, what's wrong with that? You can't say we don't have food and say we hate the food that we have, right? Like, there's, but that's what happens when we the spiritual contradiction can occur in our souls. And we all of a sudden, we exaggerate because we don't get our way. And we don't get, we don't get what we want. Oh, well, this food's, what, what was the food? Well, Numbers chapter 11, whenever the people got hungry along the way, God provides manna. Manna is honey-flavored bread that they just walked out every morning and it was on the ground. So you've got um, honey biscuits on the ground every morning, right? 
You don't have to make them. You don't have to grind the, grind the, the, the wheat for them. They're just there. Then they can play, well, we need protein. So God provides quail for them on the ground. And now they're saying, oh man, this is awful. We should go back to Egypt because we hate this. Could you imagine um, like saying to your grandma, every Thanksgiving, we loathe this worthless. I mean, every year it's turkey, it's dressing, it's mashed potatoes. It's the same thing over and over and over. And you just realize that the Hebrews and therefore us, it's like a mirror of our own souls. We have this infinite capacity for dissatisfaction and whining and complaining and exaggerating. So here's what happens in verse six. God's gonna deal with spiritual impatience. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Now, there are parts of the Bible, right, that we read and we're like, I don't like that. I, do, I, don't, I don't get that. Modern readers are gonna read a text like this and they're gonna go, this is well, this is an overreaction. This is an overreach on God's part. Well, I'll just say this. God has got a big plan. And God's big plan was to deliver 2 million people out of bondage and slavery and bring them to a land which was phenomenal, by the way, a land flowing with milk and honey, and to bring these 2 million plus people to the, the land that he had chosen because they were his chosen people. And God was gonna show the world, the ends of the earth, they were gonna see what it's like when people thrive under the love of God. He has this great, which is still his plan, by the way. You can be part of the plan. God sent his one and only son, right, to die for you and me so that the world can see what it's like when people like you and me thrive underneath the love of God. So I'm just going to say it to you this way. Do you think that if God is willing to send his one and only son to die, that he's going to allow your comfort, my comfort, or the Hebrews' comfort 1,500 years ago to get in the way of his big plan? It is unwise, it is unwise for you and me to oppose God's plan. He's the way maker, he has given us a path, right? And if you and I wanna go a different path, we can go a different path, but not wise. So God allows these serpents, the text calls them fiery serpents. Now the reason they're called fiery is because um, in that wilderness, they were poisonous adders and a, a bite from one of those adders, it, it leads to um, infection, uh, which leads to this ravenous fever, insatiable thirst. Now here in just a second, not yet, but here in just a second, I'm gonna show you a picture of an adder bite. Now some of you got weak stomachs, right? So you may wanna close your eyes, but I want you to feel this just a little bit, okay? So here we're gonna throw up a picture of an adder bite so that you can kind of have a sense of what that would have felt like. There's been no gasp in the crowd, so I'm assuming there's no adder bite picture up yet. So that's, that's, that's what's going on, right? Insatiable thirst, right? That these, that these bites, um, these bites from these serpents that they would have caused. So, what I want you to see and sense, and this is what I think Jesus is getting to in the New Testament. Sorry, we left that up there for a long time. <laughs> is that Jesus is pointing us to what's going on physically is really just a mirror of what's going on spiritually. 
that there's this infinite capacity for dissatisfaction. And what that does in our souls, it causes this insatiable thirst for more and more and more. I think I shared this with you, I don't know, maybe a decade or so ago, but there was a, a researcher um, named John Tierney who did a study um, of New York singles in their 20s uh, and 30s. Uh, it's probably, like I said, been over a decade ago, but this was back when um, like Friends and just come out of the Seinfeld era, Sex and the City era. So he really wanted to focus on what impact that had on singles in, um, in the city of New York. And he wrote an article about it. And I want to just read, he talked about a guy who was 31 uh, who was set up on a blind date. Here's what, here's what Tierney says, and I quote, it started out great. She answered the door. She had a beautiful face, great body, fantastic smile with straight teeth. But she turned and then I saw it and it ruined everything. She had dirty elbows. Tierney says, at first I thought maybe we could work this out, some therapy, maybe some soap and water. But then I realized that this guy, like many other New York singles, would, be, uh, would find something wrong with everyone, no matter how perfect they were. And I want you to listen to this last line. And he would never be satisfied. So let me ask you a question. If right now you could tell God, God, I want you to fix these three things in my life, these three circumstances, these three, what would those top three, I want you to think of them right now. I bet some of you are having trouble even thinking of three, right? Our lives are pretty good. But if God, if you would fix these three things, then life would be great, right? I would be, I would be sad. Would, would you be satisfied? If God took away all the dirty elbows from your life right now, if God made everything just perfect for you, and then you step back a minute, and you're like, oh wait, <laughs> he already did that. Genesis chapters one and two. God made a perfect garden. He put a man and a woman in there that, you know, they had everything, no sickness, no sorrow, no death. They had everything they wanted. And even then, they weren't satisfied. Serpent comes along at Eden and he says, hey, listen, listen, God is holding out on you. And if you eat the fruit of this tree, you'll be just like him. And you'll have the capacity, you can self-rule, self-govern, you'll be, you'll be exactly like him because, because he's holding you down. And as soon as Adam and Eve ate, the spiritual poison, the spiritual venom of that serpent entered not only in their souls, but they have passed it down, they have passed it along to all of us to the degree that not even paradise will satisfy our souls. We have this, um, this insatiable thirst, this spiritual fever that we call sin for more and more and more. And you just, you just can't, you can't feed it enough. I think about the students um, who are here today. I think about, you remember back when you were a student and there were certain things when you, th when you were a student that you thought, man, if I just had, right? If I could just date, Trevor, or if I could just date Mary Kate, like everything would be awesome, right? But that's the answer. That's the, that's the thing out there that I'm looking, I can't, I can't, or, or maybe it's on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you've got Trevor and you've got Mary Kate, right? And you think, man, if I lose Trevor, if I lose Mary, I, I won't be able to live. Yeah, you can. There's a lot of witnesses in the room today that lost Trevor and Mary Kate. It's all good. You'll make it. 
And at the same time, I think some of us in the room today as parents, like there's room for us, right, to grow as our students grow. If you're, maybe you're mentoring kids, you're coaching kids, as our students grow in relationships, like there's room for us to take a step back and to allow God to do what God wants to do in their relationship. And listen, I'm not talking about boundaries. Don't, right, I get it. With the, our, our student, they, they need boundaries in relationships. Like my, my, my son, uh, when he was in what, 14, 15, 16 years old, like my wife would wake him up in the morning. She'd call down to the basement down where his room was. She'd wake him up and he wouldn't get up. So she'd have to go downstairs and she'd go down and she'd sit by, sit by his bed. I mean, he's laying there dead. She's like, hey, it's time to get up. She'd just sit down. She'd pick his phone up, open it up, just scroll. <laughs> Who'd we talk to last night? What are we looking at last night, right? Just all the kids are like, I hate this church. <laughs> So I'm not talking about boundaries. The kids need boundaries, right? I'm just saying sometimes as adults, we get more into our kids' relationships than our kids are in to their relationships, right? And if God's trying to break something up as an adult, just step back, let God do what God's doing in our kids', in our kids lives. Like you should love Trevor and Mary Kate more than your daughter or your son loves Trevor or Mary Kate, right? Just step back, let God do what God wants to do. You've got a good job, but I could have a better job. You've got a, you've got an ice house. I could have a better house. You live in a good neighborhood. I could have a better neighborhood. Like our souls. We have this, we have this, this disease, this venom, this poison. But lucky for us, there's a good gospel. There's good news. It's not just that there's a poison, but that there's also, there's a healing. You can look back to Numbers chapter 21. Uh, there and look at uh, look at verse um, look at verse seven and the people came to Moses and they said we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you pray to the Lord that He would take away the serpents um, from us. The healing really comes in two parts. It's, it's very easy to see that it, think it's one part, but it's two parts. It takes friends and it takes a kind of a weird, ironic kind of image. The people come to Moses. Why do they go to Moses? Because Moses is their friend. And because they know that Moses will represent them to God. And I would just say, for you and me, students, not students, adults, right? Spiritual growth is designed to happen in the context of community. You and I, we need friends. And spiritual growth will be a whole lot more painful and it'll go a whole lot slower than it has to if you, if you, have, if you don't have friends. I think about what our students experienced for um, 48 hours or so this weekend. They can experience that same thing for four and a half days this coming summer at student camp. Registration is open now if you're here and you're a parent. Registration is open this summer for camp. I don't know about you, but some of the most spiritual moments that I had as a child, all along the way, far from perfect, stumbling through, but man, did I need those, those moments for a week um, in the summer where God brought together a specific environment and specific people, friends, people that I'm still friends with today. Um, in a lot of ways, God brings those two things together. My, I've always said my favorite moment as a parent of the year, my favorite hour, my favorite, favorite 60 minutes of the year were when my kids got home from student camp. 
Because for an hour, they would sit down with me, they would sit down with Angie, and they would download everything that the speaker said to them, everything, which is the exact same things that we said to them, but it didn't matter that we had already said it, right? Because the speaker said it that week, and because they worshiped to it that week, it was different, and God did different things. My favorite hour of the week. And I will just say to students in the room, that Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13 says, he who walks with the wise is wise and the companion of fools suffers harm. That you need godly friends. And those are not even the only friends you have, but you need godly friends. That the people you hang around with determine the course and direction of your life. And you can tell your mom and dad that too, right? On the, on the way. Because that's true for all of us. If you're in the room and you don't have context for biblical godly relationships, we have life groups. We love, we would love, love, love to help you take the step to get into a group and develop some healthy, godly, biblical relationships. It takes friends, but it's not just friends. But the other half of it, uh, you'll see in verse eight. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent um, and he would live. Such a weird, um, a weird way to provide healing. God says to Moses, Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a bronze serpent. You're going to put it on a, a pole, a piece of wood. You're going to hold it up. And anyone who's been bitten, anyone who's got the fever, right, this insatiable thirst, they're going to look at the pole and they'll be healed. Like that's the way. And it doesn't make sense to us, right? Like the thing that's biting everyone and feeling like torturing everyone, like that's the thing, like you would feel people would you know, break down and cry whenever they would look up and see, and see this image. But isn't it ironic that today, no matter where you go in the world, walk into a doctor's office, you look up at the doctor's, um, you look up at his degree on the wall, ambulance goes by and you see the ambulance go by and you look at the symbol on the outside of the ambulance and what is it? Snakes wrapped around a pole. Weird image, isn't it? That we have chosen to say this is what represents healing. And the mixture of, uh, of, that, uh, of that danger and that, that's come all the way out of the Garden of Eden, it's just, it's, it's this weird thing. So much so, I don't know, 15 or so years ago, um, there was a show on the Nat Geo channel called Snake Salvation. Um, it was about some churches, uh, pastors in Eastern uh, Kentucky. These are my people down there, Southern Ohio, Eastern Kentucky. And uh, the show actually focused on the Cootie family. I'll show you their picture. James Cootie, who is a pastor. His dad was a snake handling pastor. He's a snake handling pastor. And his son became a snake handling pastor. So I was flipping through the channels and I watched it once or maybe more than once. How can you skip watching um, Appalachian people handle snakes in the middle of a church service, right? So, um, and you watch the show, and it's just this weird mixture of uh, what you think about religiosity and danger and excitement and adventure and spirituality that just doesn't seem right at all to make sense. Eventually, uh, James Cootie was bitten uh, by a rattlesnake, well, he was bitten more than one time, but he was bitten by a rattlesnake in uh, 2014 and he died. Uh, from that, his son took over as the pastor and um, he allowed a rattlesnake to bite him uh, in a church service uh, one day that actually um, it hit um, kind of a major vein. There was blood everywhere. And all I can think, I just want to say, I'm sorry our church services are not more exciting, right? 
I'm sorry. But what God tells Moses to do, even though it seems weird to us, it's like, yeah, put the snake up on the pole, hold the pole up, everybody looks at it. And for 1,500 years, I'm sure the rabbis look back as they studied and they're like, man, that's weird. And it was weird until John chapter 3, when Jesus is answering the most important question that's ever been asked. He didn't answer it from the perspective of morality. It's not about being religious and good and right. He didn't answer it from the perspective of philosophy because it's not about being intellectual and smarter than everybody else, but he answered it from the perspective of history. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he says, you remember all the way back, all the way back on the plain of Eden 1,500 years ago, Moses and the serpents and the people and Moses lifted up the serpent on a pole and everybody looked at the serpent and they lived. And he looks at Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, that's me. Because just like they put that serpent on the pole and lifted it up, I'm going to be put onto a pole. I'm going to be put onto a cross. And I'm, going to be, and I'm going to be lifted up. And the idea here, Nicodemus, is that just like people looked at the serpent and they found life and they found soul-level satisfaction, it's a difficult treasure to find. But Nicodemus, what I'm saying to you is, I'm going to be lifted up onto a pole. I'm going to be lifted up onto a tree. I'm going to be sacrificed for the people's sins. And everyone who looks to me, everyone who comes to me, everyone who says, I've got to find satisfaction at a deeper level in my life than I've ever known because nothing I've got is working. Everyone who looks to me, Nicodemus is, is going to live. So the reality is that Jesus received what we deserved. Jesus received the payment, the price, the penalty for your sins and for my sins. All of that placed on him, on the tree, on the cross, so that you and I could have what Andy led us with today. Simon Peter walking on the water this firm foundation in the midst of a storm. This, this idea, this sense that is in all of us, right? That we want the old to pass away. And so we're thinking, yeah, that's gonna happen someday, but God wants to do what? He wants to do, make all things new now in you. You are a new creation, you're a new creature. So you have the capacity today, if you come in here and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ today, you can do that, you can take that step into a first relationship with Christ. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus wanted to make it really, really clear. So he says to Nicodemus, just like the serpent on the pole, John chapter, or John chapter three, verse 14, and he rolls into John chapter three, verse 15, and he kind of gives a little more explanation, and then he lands on what? John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, and you just put your name in that blank, you're the whoever, believes in him, would not perish, but can have eternal life. Because Jesus is the one, according to Isaiah 53, right? He's the one who carried our diseases. He's the one who bore his sin, uh, uh, excuse me, bore our sins on his shoulders. And by his stripes, we are healed. Physically healed and spiritually healed. That raging venom that was released by Adam and Eve that runs in your veins, that runs in my veins, can be forgiven. If, if we look to him, if we choose his path as the way maker, The same thing, the same, the same gospel that Jesus preached to Nicodemus is the same one that he's preaching uh, to you and me. 
few years ago, um, I was sitting on a plane getting ready to take off, and I sat down by a lady um, whose name was Penny. The reason I knew her name was Penny is because as soon as I sat down, she started talking. She had plain nerves. You ever sit by somebody who's got plain nerves, right? And I found out very quickly that Penny was um, raising four, uh, four children. She had a 17-year-old, a 16-year-old boys. She had a 13-year-old, 10-year-old girls. And the reason that I knew all that, so she was explaining to me in her story that she was a single mom, is very difficult raising all those children. And she said, the reason that I'm a single mom is because I was married to a man who was very angry. And I said, well, why was he angry? And she said, uh, she said, he just carried this rage. And she said, I, I couldn't figure it out. And she said, being married to him for almost a decade or more, she said, here's what I learned. She said, whenever, uh, whenever he was 17 years old, he shot his sister with a shotgun um, accidentally. And what he told his parents growing up was that he was cleaning the shotgun and the shotgun accidentally went off. And, uh, but she said one night he got drunk, he struggled with alcohol, and she said one night when he was drunk, he told me what really happened. And he was actually taunting his sister, his 11-year-old sister with shotgun when he was 17. Didn't know the gun was loaded, gun accidentally goes off, and he killed his sister. And she said he just carries this, this rage, this anger. And she said he drinks, and that doesn't help. He tried drugs, that doesn't help. And she said he could just never, he could never, he could never get over it. He could never get past it. And what just blurted out of my mouth was, yeah, he can't forgive himself, can he? And she said, that's it. He can't forgive himself. I said, yeah. I said, he could go read a book. Self-help. Look into the mirror every day and tell yourself, so you're a winner. It's okay. It's okay. Doesn't work. And I said to Penny, I said, you know, Penny, none of us can forgive ourselves. And the reason today that some of you are carrying around rage and guilt and shame, anger, resentment, is because you can't forgive yourself. Forgiveness has to come from someone else from someone who paid, so something wrong was done. We've all done it, right? We've all done wrong things. Someone has to pay for the wrong things. So Jesus comes, leaves heaven, comes to earth, dies on the cross. He pays for it. So what? He is the only one that can offer us forgiveness. And the wonder of this gospel is that it's not just for people who don't believe, it's for people who do believe, that our hearts are consistently renewed in God's plan. That God wants to love you and love you and love you and love you in the midst of your falls, flaws in the midst of your faults to the degree that the world looks at your life and says, how could somebody like that? How could somebody like that have peace? How could somebody like that have joy? It's because you are a light of the love of God. So the you are thriving under the love of God. There's a great moment in, um, in Spider-Man, in No Way Home, where Peter Parker is like, why is everything going on, going wrong in my life? And he's asking the question that you and I are always asking. There's this thing, there's this dirty elbow and this dirty elbow and this. Why are all these things going wrong? And Dr. Strange looks at him and he says, Peter, the problem is you trying to live two different lives. And the longer you do it, the more dangerous it's going to become. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, 
and you're trying to choose two paths, two ways, the longer you do it, the more dangerous it becomes. Not even paradise will satisfy your souls, but the healing has come. And we can look to him. We can look to Jesus and our souls can be satisfied. We're getting ready to sing a song. And the first line of the second verse is this. My whole life I have placed in your hands. So I would just ask you today, have you done that? Not part of your life, not almost all of your life, but your whole life. Have you placed it in his hands? Let's pray together. God, you are the sole satisfier. Lord, what we want because of our humanity, because of the, the spiritual venom, God, that is released in our souls, what we want are, are, are comfortable circumstances. But God, thank you that you will not allow our comfort to get in the way of your love. So God, as we sing this morning, as we worship this morning, God, what we really want, what we really need is you. And God, I pray that we will be a people who will constantly look, constantly lift our eyes up above our circumstances and up above, up above our thirst, that God, we would constantly look to you, that we would look to you and really live. In Jesus' name, amen.